um, want to say a welcome to Miranda. I've heard rumor that she's in the house. And so uh, we rejoice in the Lord for his kindness in restoring that fellowship to us. I also want to um, do a few shout outs before we begin. Um, one to our AV team, they're the invisible people who show me much kindness and grace every week and uh, often are forgotten. So thank you to them for helping me as always. And I also want to make a plug. Next week is going to be the launch of our Cornerstone ministry. It is a, um, essentially, we gather together for lunch and you can see there's an announcement on the brochure where you can RSVP. It's a great deal, $5 per person, $10 per family. And then after we gather together here to consider how do we live out what we're hearing on Sunday morning. And our focus this semester is going to be on communication and conflict resolution, God's way. And uh, next Sunday, the Guecos will actually be sharing about their trip to the Philippines and shepherding their family there through... Uh, the challenges that they faced and addressing the issues of conflict resolution God's way. So you won't want to miss out on that and that'll be a sweet time. So please join us if you can. Well, this morning we're back to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, to the Sermon on the Mount that begins with Jesus' declaration of blessing. Declaration of blessing for those who are part of his kingdom, for the disciples and we're coming to the beatitude this morning, which will be our focal point. We'll do before and after. But our focal point is, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And as we think about mourning, nobody usually gets too excited or happy or jumping up for joy over this issue of mourning. And in fact, uh, if you've followed the news this past week, we witnessed a nation in mourning or what's referred to, I guess, as a kingdom in mourning, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, who mourned the death and the passing of their queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And as they did this, they also heralded the arrival of a new king, King Charles III. Now, for many who are citizens of the United Kingdom, this transition for all its pomp and circumstance is mostly ceremonial and sentimental. This transition of one monarch for another probably will have very little impact in the daily lives of most of the citizens of the United Kingdom, apart from maybe getting some new money with some new pictures on it. But day to day probably won't change for most. But as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing to the disciples that there is a new king in town. The old king, the king of their lives themselves and the king of their sin and the kingdoms of this world is no longer the king and the kingdom that has rule or authority over their lives. And this is why he's brought his disciples up to a mountain and he's speaking to them, though there are crowds around who he does want to hear what he has to say, but this is a sermon and this is a proclamation directed to the disciples, those who have left everything in response to his call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and come and follow me and I will make you into something completely different. I will make you like me. I will make you fishers of men. And it's a change of authority and rule that is not just ceremonial 
and sentimental. Many times our church lives, it is pomp and circumstance and coming in and out and talking about figureheads like the queen and it has very little impact on our daily lives. But Jesus is making the point with this declaration of blessedness that his authority, his kingship, his rulership over the lives of these men is a kingdom and a rule that radically, radically, radically changes everything in their lives. And that's why when we read through these Beatitudes, they seem so contrary to what seems right and normal in our world. They are the hallmarks of a transformed life, a life that has been transformed by the King and the Kingdom of Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and we will read the first six verses. And these verses bear testimony to a life that is blessed because it is a life that belongs not to the kings and kingdoms of this world, but it's a life that belongs to the king and kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've made mention to you many times by way of illustration about my transition from being a Canadian to becoming an American. And when I first immigrated and moved from Canada and took a job here in the States, though I spoke the same language, though I had been raised watching the same TV shows and movies, though I had visited many times when I actually came to live here, believe it or not, life was very strange. Uh, there were a lot of things that I got wrong, whether it was at the DMV or going to the post office or handling things, even language that I used. And life very much seemed confusing and strange here. But there was, in fact, a strange thing that happened that my mentor told me would happen, who had also immigrated from Canada. And it came true, which is the longer I spent here, eventually over a period of years, I was able to go back and visit friends and family in Canada. And when I went back, the bizarre thing is, I found Canadians to be very strange how they did things, what they did at the post office, where they went to shop, what they did. And the Canadians hadn't changed, it was me. I had become an American. I'd learned to think like an American. I'd learned to talk and walk like an American. I'd learned to purchase things at Costco like an American. I learned to do all of those different things, I changed. And even though I thought they were strange, I was the one who had changed. And as we think about Jesus here talking to the disciples, this must have seemed strange to them. And yet they had just entered into this life where they had left everything behind and Jesus is pointing out to them up front what exactly has happened in their lives. 
And it's strange because it is completely different from the lives that they used to have. Everything is upside down. It is a life that has been completely transformed by God's grace. It's a life that's completely dependent on God's grace. Everywhere the disciples would go, what they ate, where they would be, who they would be with, what type of ministry they engaged in. It was all entirely dependent on Jesus and the gospel and his ministry. And it was very, very different in all likelihood from the lives that they'd led before, whether it was to be a tax collector, a zealot, or a fisherman. And it was completely new, as Jesus alludes to and points out here, because this is a new life of repentance and faith in Jesus as their king and as their Lord. It's a completely new life of repentance and faith in Him. And Jesus sums up, as we've said before, this new life of repentance and faith in Him with one word. And that word is blessed. And that brings us to our first point this morning. The blessed life of Christ's kingdom is a new life of repentance and faith in Christ. The blessed life of Christ's kingdom is a new life of repentance and faith in Christ. Over 500 years ago, when Martin Luther inadvertently and unintentionally launched the Reformation, it was not his intention to launch the Reformation. It started with him nailing 95 theses on the door of a cathedral in Wittenberg, and it was done in a language that most people did not understand and was not meant for lay people. It was a discussion. And of those 95 theses, the first thesis was about how the Christian life was to be a life of repentance. It was not to be some transactional exchange where we go to the priest and we clean ourselves up and we say what we think we did wrong and we get a stamp of approval and then you're welcome into the church. Martin Luther pointed out that they had it all backwards. That this life, this new life that Christ gives, that he calls us to, this kingdom life, is a life of repentance and faith in him as our king. It's not something we do at the door and then we're good for the rest of our lives. And as we look at the Beatitudes that we just read, in fact, as you consider them, you will see that they demonstrate the heart of repentance and faith in Christ. Especially these first four. They're the hallmarks, the stamp of authenticity of what a life transformed by grace is. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, in Matthew 3 and 4, and in the preaching of John the Baptist, and in the ministry of Jesus, there is only one way into the kingdom of heaven. And it is not through a pastor or a pope. It is through a new God-given life of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And it needs to be received as a gift. Because that's what grace, unmerited favor is. We don't work our way in. We don't earn our way in. We don't pay our way in through ministry or seminary. It is entirely a gracious gift to an undeserving sinner. It's what Jesus refers to to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 as being born again. Which is literally 
Born from above. That Greek word anothen means born from above. It means receiving a life that is not yours from God. The life of God. And the context of John chapter 3, as you recall, is Nicodemus, the man who is the teacher of Israel, who probably has memorized the entire Old Testament, who is brilliant and knowledgeable about the law, comes to Jesus and he can't put it together. He can't make the connection. He doesn't understand what he needs to do. He understands that there's something happening here that's from God, but he can't make the connection. And we see from Jesus' words, the one way into his kingdom, Matthew 18, 3, Truly, amen, truly I say to you, unless you turn, and the Greek word here is strafo, and it means to be converted, to be transformed, to be changed. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about everything that's associated with the new life and starting over again. And then in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born Again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, in Christ's kingdom, citizenship is by birth alone. It's by birth alone. Now, most people, when we think about becoming a Christian, we think of repentance and faith in Christ. We think repentance is me stopping a particular sin. Me breaking a habit. Me cleaning myself up. And then faith, we think of it as, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. And essentially, these are the things, the two things that we need to do. Clean yourself up. Get holy. Say the right things. Believe in Jesus. And this is what qualifies you to be part of the Jesus team. This is what gets you onto the floor to play. This is what allows you to become a member in a local church. And we see the pattern here. What I do first in this transactional exchange, right? I do this and then God gives me my my Costco pass and I get to enjoy all the benefits of being in the Costco kingdom. But brothers and sisters, if this is indeed the standard of what it means to be a child of God and a member of his kingdom, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, the Muslims, Mahatma Gandhi, and the demons will get into the kingdom before you and I. Because they all believe in Jesus. They all know a lot more about Jesus than many Christians in America. And they're all a lot better at being disciplined and breaking habits. Brothers and sisters, repentance and faith in Christ, it begins with Jesus and the work that he does in our lives as the light of the world. It doesn't begin with what we do for him. If you have your Bibles, would you go back a chapter to Matthew 4, 12 through 5, 3. And we're going to read this. I know we've read this many times. But I want to draw your attention to this because this is foundational because the Beatitudes reflect this life that Christ has given the disciples. It says 4.12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of, of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, 
On them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And this is what precedes his declaration of those whom God blesses and why he blesses them. Now let me ask you a few questions based on what we just read. We've been through this before. According to God's word, what comes first? The light of God's word, also known as Jesus? Or the disciples' repentance and faith? According to God's word, what comes first? Jesus' gospel command, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and follow me or the disciples' repentance and following him, leaving and cleaving to Jesus. And according to God's word, what comes first? Jesus' presence and the presence of his light and life and blessing and grace in their lives especially the grace of his word or the disciples' obedience. Brothers and sisters, according to God's word, it's Christ's presence in a believer's life that empowers and strengthens and brings a sinner to the place where they can grieve over their sin, where they are no longer willing to conceal or put up fronts, And they're willing to see that Jesus, as King, the Holy Son of God, the Messiah, the King of God's Word, is the only one who can make their paths straight. And this is because, according to God's Word, the Gospel is the good news, not of my work and what I do or what I know, like Nicodemus. The Gospel is the good news of God's work of salvation through the life and death of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of the life of Christ coming into our lives and destroying our old lives where we were king and a life that was ruled by sin and death. And instead, he is not only a new king, but he gives us an entirely new life. And that life is his life. It's not our old life. There is an end to the old life and a beginning to the new. And we forget about that. Like the Israelites. And we want to think back of our life in Egypt. And we want to go back there. But it's a completely new life. And this is what theologians refer to as regeneration. This new life that he gives of repentance and faith in him. Dr. MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew 
define it in this way. They say that regeneration is the divine impartation of eternal spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner. Regeneration is the divine impartation of eternal spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner. By grace, you have been saved. And this is what makes us, brothers and sisters, a child of God. This is what gives us an entirely new life that belongs to Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is what gives us a heart that naturally turns away from sin and turns away from self and turns away from the world. And it's instead, it turns towards God and it turns towards His truth and it turns towards His Word and it turns towards His grace. And brothers and sisters, this is what repentance and faith is. It is a turning away from our sin and our self-centeredness and our selfishness and a world that revolves around us and our sinfulness. And instead, it naturally gravitates and turns towards a humble dependence on the grace of God, His goodness, His truth. How? It turns to God as our Father. And as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes that point to those he's talking to about how God is their Father and they need to begin to relate to Him as their Father. They're no longer street children or street urchins who have to cower in fear when an adult comes along. Now, brothers and sisters, you've seen this here in the church, right? I have offered... To some of you with little children, I've offered to watch your children or to hold your children, the little ones. And what happens? You hand that child to me. And that child takes one look at me and says, who is this strange bald man? They begin to cry. And they put their hands up like this and they go back to their parents like this, right? And why do they do that? I'm not their father. I'm not their mother. The heart, yearn, the heart that yearns in that child is a heart that is the natural child of that parent that understands I'm a poor substitute and what they want is the love, the nurture, the fellowship of which they were born to have. And brothers and sisters, that's repentance. Repentance isn't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's a natural yearning to be close to the one who gave you life, to your parent, to a good father. It's the gift of a new life, brothers and sisters. A life that needs to be held by God our Father. Why? Because it rightfully belongs to Him. And this is the life, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is coming to the disciples and saying, this is the blessed life. This is the blessed life. And it's blessed because it belongs to the Lord. And it is dear and near. And it is cherished by God the Father because it is a life of His child. It's the life that belongs to Him. It's the life that contains the heart and life that yearns and follows after and is after God Himself. And brothers and sisters, it's a life of repentance and faith in Christ. And that is what Jesus talk, is talking about in verses 3 through 6 when he talks about poor in spirit, mournful, meek, and hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Those are all expressions of a heart that yearns for the love and grace and truth of God rather than the whistles and bells of this world. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. The Beatitudes reveal the new heart of the King in us. The Beatitudes reveal the new heart of the King in us. 
This, brothers and sisters, is what poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness are. They're the hallmarks, they're the stamp of authenticity of a new heart and life that yearns for the things of God because it belongs to God. It's the heart and life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in us. And so this morning we'll look at these first two, poverty of spirit and then mourning, but we're going to look at them within the context of how they connect and relate to God and their relationship with God. Now last week we noted how poverty of spirit is primarily the hallmark of a Christian's new and blessed life of grace, the humble dependency on God's grace. Can I have my next slide, please? And we summarized it using these two New Testament scholars' summaries where we talked about poverty of spirit. Robert A. Gulick says, Poor in spirit are those who stand without pretense before God, stripped of all self-sufficiency, all self-security, and all self-righteousness. And Charles Quarles writes, Poor in spirit means beggarly in spirit. Someone who is keenly aware that he or she is spiritually destitute and must rely entirely on the grace of God for salvation. And in scripture, this is the opposite of pride. And we see that in Proverbs 16.9 where the author of Proverbs says, It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, we talked about this at length last week, so I won't belabor the point, but we talked about this, that this poverty of spirit is the spirit of that little infant that craves and cries for its parents' milk. The humble dependence without a sense of entitlement, without a sense of, hey, let's negotiate this, without a sense of, I deserve this because of all the things I have done, but simply that, that basic primary need for the goodness and grace of God our Father. And we see that this is very much the spirit of Christ and his humanity. And the point I want to make this week is that everything we talked about last week about poverty of spirit, we see this in the life of Christ. We see this in his humanity. We see this as he walks along as God's son where he spends time in prayer. Where does he find his rest? He doesn't go to a spa. He doesn't take a vacation. When life is stressful, he withdraws so that he can be alone with the Spirit and the Father. And throughout his journey, his intent is not to consider himself. He doesn't come to God to negotiate. He doesn't say, God, I deserve A, B, C, D, and E because of all the miracles I've done, because of all the preaching I've done, because of all the sacrifices I've made. God, why isn't it working out for me? He has this humble, childlike dependency and faith in God the Father and God's kingdom plan for His Son. And it is this humble dependency, this poverty of spirit, this dependence on the grace and plan of the Father that takes Jesus all the way to the cross. And as He goes to the cross, His prayer, which really summarizes the entirety of His life, is not, my will be done but thy will be done. 
This is brought forth in the Lord's Prayer, but it's also in the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus is crucified. When he comes to the Father, and he asks, he comes to the Father, if this cup can be taken away from him, the suffering and bearing the sins of the world, if it can, if there's any way, but at the end, no sense of entitlement, a simple submission to the goodness and grace of his Father's will. And brothers and sisters, this same spirit that brought Jesus to the cross for your sins and mine is the same spirit that brings a sinner to repentance and faith in Christ. That brings a sinner to say, I'm not going to justify myself. I'm not going to negotiate. I am who I am. I need your grace. And there's only one person who can save me. It's the spirit of the prodigal son. When he's sitting there in the mud pit of pigs and he considers and remembers the love of his father and the grace that's extended even to servants in his father's household. And brothers and sisters, this is the spirit of a true child of God from beginning to end. And this is why they're blessed. Because the life they possess is the life of the king. And the spirit they possess is the spirit of the king. And it's to such as these that God has promised to give his kingdom. It's to such as these who will inherit the kingdom. Why? Because they're the true heirs of the kingdom. Because they're children of God who possess the heart of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this brings us to the second hallmark of a new life of repentance and faith in Christ. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Could I have my next slide, please? Now, in any time and place, to mourn means to grieve, means to regret, it means to express sorrow or heartbreak or even anger over the loss of something or someone we loved. We can mourn over the loss of a career. We can mourn over the loss of a relationship or a friend. And we can mourn and grieve over the loss of innocence, over the loss of goodness, and we can also mourn over the death of a loved one. And in Scripture, this is also known as lament. But it's worth stopping and asking what and who exactly is Jesus talking about when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And contextually, as we've read in Matthew 3 and 4, Jesus is specifically talking about the mourning of the citizens of his kingdom, the mourning of the children of God. Now, buyer beware. As Jesus says this, he points out that being a child of God in this fallen world, because Jesus, as he walks us through, if you notice, he said, blessed are, and then he goes to a future tense. And he's pointing out that this new life has started now, but it's going to continue moving forward into eternity. And God has a plan along the way. And it is blessed, but God has a plan of that blessing. But he makes the point from the beginning that as children of God living in this fallen world, one of the characteristics of this life and this heart is mourning, is grief and sorrow. 
It's something we've forgotten in American Christianity, sadly. There's an expectation when you come to church that we should have Disneyland, that you should be in the happiest place on earth, right? Because we're Christians. But as we come to God's Word and we see the heart of our Lord and Savior, not so. There is a place for lament. There is a place for sorrow. There is a place for grief. And we need to address this and admit this because the remedy, brothers and sisters, God gives freely and abundantly. And to understand what a child of God mourns over, we need to understand what their father, God the Father, mourns over. So what grieves and what breaks the heart of God our Father? Well, I have up here, I believe, Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. And this is the introduction to the flood. And it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the total depravity of man. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Regret and grief. What does God grieve over, brothers and sisters? What breaks his heart? What makes him sad and sorrowful and upset? Well, from the beginning, it's very, very clear, isn't it? God mourns over the evil hearts and minds of men. He mourns and grieves and is deeply upset over our wickedness that fills his good creation. And as we come to the Gospels, we see like father, like son. Our Lord and Savior, how do we know He's the Son of God? He has the exact heart of His Father. And in Mark 3, verse 5, as Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, as well as a man whose hand is withered, and it's on a Sabbath day, and He makes this question about whether is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't want to say anything, and they remain silent, because they don't want to admit that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And they would rather a man stay sick in order to make their point. We're the ones in charge of this kingdom, not you. It plays by our rules, not your rules. And in Mark 3, verse 5, it says, And he, and that's Jesus, looked around at them. These are the Pharisees. With anger, grieved at what? Their hardness of heart. A stubborn heart. A heart that resists the grace of God. A heart that says, I don't need your help. I'm good enough on my own. I'm in charge. Hardness. Refusal. Even when the Lord makes it abundantly clear that a mighty work of God is here. And also when there is a necessity for life-giving compassion. To heal and restore. Jesus grieves over the Pharisees' refusal to repent and turn to God, over their pride and their stubbornness and hardness of heart that resists and refuses the grace of God, not only for themselves, but for others as well. And that's what happens, brothers and sisters. When we're hard with the Lord, when we resist His kindness and grace, we don't give it to others either. And that's coming later. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. And that's what happens, brothers and sisters, when we prefer our own self-righteousness as opposed to the help that Jesus can give. 
our terms, not his. When folks come in and they want help and they want counseling, the question is, are they broken? Do they grieve over their sin? Are they willing to say this is going to happen on Christ's terms? Or are there all these stipulations? Well, as we come to John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse allegedly, and it says Jesus wept, and the context is Jesus is at Lazarus' tomb, his friend, and Lazarus has died. And Jesus is weeping, not just over Lazarus' death, because he's going to raise him from the grave, but Jesus is heartbroken and sorrowful, as you look at the context, over the unbelief and sin that rules this world, that brings death to all, and that separates us from the love of God. Brothers and sisters, when we look at what mourning is as a child of God, it is a grief and heartbreak and sorrow over the sinfulness and wickedness, first of our own hearts, and the destruction that that causes, and the death that that brings, first in our relationship with God, but then to all around us. And as we come to the epistles, we see that this is the heart of a true child of God. They share God's heart. They love the things that God loves. And they sorrow and weep over the things that break God's heart. And we see in Ephesians 4.30, this is what grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul gives this command in Ephesians 4.30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And we see what grieves the Father's heart, what grieves the Son's heart, what grieves the Spirit's heart, it's the same. And Paul goes on to talk about bitter and unforgiving hearts. Those are stubborn hearts, right? Hearts that hang on, that they're owed something. It's the same thing all the way through. Brothers and sisters, what is the heart that brings sinners to a place of repentance and faith in Christ? It is a heart like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is a heart that is heartbroken over the unbelief and selfishness and sinfulness and wickedness of our hearts and of this world. And so, brothers and sisters, how many of us, as we consider ourselves, are without sin? Well, it ain't me. And then we need to ask ourselves, when was the last time we were heartbroken and grieved over our sin in the way that God is heartbroken and grieved over our sin. And what it does to offend Him in our relationship with one who loves us and what it does to those around us and what it does to the world. How often, brothers and sisters, is our grief over our sin merely a grief over the inconvenience of our sin rather than a grief over offending the one we love and who loves us. Well, as we go to the Apostle Paul, and we consider how does this play out in the local church, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.2, he says to the Corinthians, he says, and you are arrogant, and he's talking about a sin of sexual immorality in the church. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this, this sin of sexual immorality in the church, be removed from among you. And he exhorts them and he stirs them up and he says, you've become so desensitized to sin in your community and culture in the city of Corinth that was rampant, 
It had come into the church. It had just become norm to them. They become hardened to it. And Paul writes them this letter as they're just sort of avoiding dealing with it because it's a problem in the church and they're sort of what we do. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. So we just sort of leave it until it gets uncomfortable and inconvenient enough that we have to deal with it. And Paul's writing to them and, and he's chastising them. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And we see where our lack of mourning over sin, our sin or the sin of the world, comes from, brothers and sisters. It's our pride. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, 21. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. The Apostle Paul says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Humility and pride. And I may have to, what? Mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. The Apostle Paul's pleading with them to repent of this idolatry that is rampant in their midst. They become totally desensitized to this sin of sexual immorality and impurity that was rampant in the Roman Empire. And he's praying and he's pleading with them to repent so that when he comes, he doesn't have to grieve and mourn. Brothers and sisters, when you really love someone and you hurt them, it breaks your heart. And you will do whatever it takes to make things right. Why? Because you love that person. When you don't care about that person, let's hide, let's conceal, let's do whatever we can. But no, there's a grieving, there's a mourning, there's a heartbreak. And it's different, brothers and sisters, from being self-absorbed. There's a big distinction. Martin Luther made this point. This is a big distinction from going up, beating yourself, making a huge commotion, talking to a bunch of priests, doing all of these different things, thinking over and over again, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person. Because the distinction when it's the heart of God, when it's the heart of a child of God, the heart's desire, what moves that heart and what breaks that heart is the desire to be united in fellowship with the one you love. And the only way that will happen is with the sin removed. The only way that will happen is if you turn like the prodigal son and go back to the father you've offended and say, hey, I blew it. Can you fix this? It's a mourning and a sorrow that leads to life and not death because it comes from the heart and love of God. If you have your Bibles, have a look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians Chapter 7, check, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and Paul is talking about the same thing. He says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And he talks about calling them out. He said, For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Think of God's regret over the wickedness of the world. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief 
produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, this is verse 12, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And he talks about further comfort and Titus being refreshed in their presence. Why is Titus refreshed in their presence? Because they're repentant. They're reconciled with the Lord and they have this celebration and this joy, this sin, this barrier that was between us. It's been dealt with and it's removed. And brothers and sisters, it is to such as these that Jesus says they are blessed. Why? Because they have a heart that has brought them to repentance and faith in the only one who can remove what has gotten in the way of that relationship with God their Father, the one who loves them. And he says they're blessed. Why? Because they will be comforted by God. And what is the comfort? The comfort, brothers and sisters, Paul just showed us. It's the mercy and grace and forgiveness of the cross and of their king. It's the removal of that guilt so it is as if that sin never existed before. It's the unfettered love of God and the celebration and basking in the glory of that. Brothers and sisters, what is the only remedy for sin against God? It's not my works. It's not my self-justification. It's not my management of my sin. It's not my negotiation the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. It's the removal of guilt. It's what the only remedy for my unbelief and hard heart is. It's the heart of Christ. It's a new heart, brothers and sisters. It's forgiveness of sin, but it's a new heart. And what is the only remedy, brothers and sisters, for the injustice, the wickedness, the sin and death of this world? It is a just God and King who will make things right in His time and His way and He's already begun that at the cross. And so we look out in the world around us and we see George Floyd. We see Vladimir Putin. We see all of these terrible things, brothers and sisters. We do need to be upset about it. We do need to grieve. It is wickedness. It is not right. It is a consequence of sin and death in this world. But brothers and sisters, with a godly mourning, there's a realization the only comfort that exists is the comfort that comes from the bosom of the Father. The only comfort that exists is somehow this is going to get addressed and it's going to be made right. The only comfort that exists is the nurture and grace and care that only God can give. And there's only one place He gives it, brothers and sisters. It's at the foot of the cross. It's through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we do need to weep with those who weep. And we do need to mourn with those who mourn. And we need to come alongside and show them there is a God who knows what it's like to have his child killed wrongfully. 
There is a God who understands what it means to be ridiculed and shamed unjustly. There is a God who understands and knows what it means to be weary and downtrodden and physically exhausted. Not by quote-unquote choice, but out of faithfulness and love to the Father. And brothers and sisters, no one knows how to take care of a child better than our God. And if we indeed, brothers and sisters, are children who have the same heart and understand that, and we have been nurtured and cared for by God, as Paul says, we comfort others with the comfort we have received. But it doesn't happen, brothers and sisters, without repentance and faith in Christ. It doesn't happen if we avoid the cross. It doesn't happen if we say, here's the three reasons why I did what I did. Here's the reasons why everybody else is wrong and it's not me. It only happens, brothers and sisters, in brokenness when we are willing to place our lives in the hands of the Father who loves and cares for us and give His Son to die for us. What does this look like? I'm going to bring this home. Thank you for bearing with me this morning. You have your Bibles, have a look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And in David's heart, a heart that was hard over his sin, a heart that resisted, a heart that ran from God, and yet God the Father in love sends Nathan the prophet to say you are the man for committing adultery and killing a man in order to cover your sin. And so this psalm is written... And it becomes a praise in the household of God where people, the community of faith, all knew his business. And as you see this, you are going to see what poverty of spirit looks like. As you see this, you're going to see what mourning that comes from a heart of repentance and faith in God as the only hope of salvation looks like. As you see this, you're going to see what meekness looks like. And as you see this, you're going to see what hungering and thirsting after righteousness looks like. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God. 
O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Brothers and sisters, this is the expression of a heart of a child of God who has done wrong and has sinned terribly, but understands and appreciates that the only one who can make it right is not him but God, and whose strongest desire is a hunger and thirst for what is right before the Lord, a desire to be restored to the fellowship of a loving God, but also an awareness and appreciation that God is willing and able to do this. And so we see with the Beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirst for righteousness. These are all attributes, brothers and sisters, that come from a new life and new heart that Christ gives, but ultimately one that leads us to Christ. And so as we think application for ourselves, brothers and sisters, we need to think of our own lives because we become desensitized and hardened to sin. It's the nature of our beast. And the remedy, brothers and sisters, is not cleaning ourselves up or beating ourselves up over our sin. It's coming to Christ. It's being with Him. It's being in His Word and speaking to Him in prayer. But very specifically, as we come to the Word and as you do your daily devotions, how often do we let the Lord speak into our lives? How often when we read, do we, like David, say, show me the hidden sins of my heart? How often do we come fearlessly to the Lord and say, you see, you know, you understand. This is not for everybody else in the church. This is for me. What are the areas, Father, that I've been resistant? Will we allow His Word to speak into our lives and shepherd our hearts? with the hope and faith that we have a Father and a God who can remove that sin, restore the joy of our salvation, and bring us back into fellowship so that we can celebrate the heart and life of a new life of repentance and faith in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how you have loved us. And we thank you that when you come into our lives, you give us a new heart. A heart that grieves over the things that you grieve over. A heart that desires the things that you desire. A heart that delights in being in your presence. But you also give us a life that provides us, Lord, with the only comfort and remedy for the ugliness of this world. You give us your heart and your life, and we thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.